It had the body of a deer, but... Oh, sorry, start again. Have you pressed record yet? I did a while ago. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode... 19. No, it's 20. No, it's 19. Okay, 19 of the world-famous Tetrawadsology podcast with me, Darren Nash. (laughs) Oh, and me, John Conway. (laughs) What are we talking about in this episode? Oh, no. No, Carry on. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You were about to say. What are we talking about in this episode? What, What do you want to talk about in this episode? Well, this episode, we've got so many cash for questions that I think a big bulk of the episode, the bulk of the episode is going to be the cash for questions. We've got some nice questions here, and Darren's even done research. But I always do research, and it's stuff I would have to do anyway. Uh I wanted to um, kind of catch up on some stuff that's relevant to last time briefly, though. And and as always, there's lots of new stuff to talk about. So this could be part of... Cow and Keezy Corner. <laughs> Although Mike Keezy, Mike Keezy wants it to be renamed Keezy and Cow Corner. <laughs> a la McCartney and Lennon. Um, now, do you remember discussing um, the whole issue of the sexual dimorphism in Asian elephant tusks? Yep. Was that last time? Uh... Well, I spoke to... I think it was last, the time well, before last time. Really whatever, matter, whatever. It? It, was, it was recently covered. So yeah. why, why is there this pronounced sexual dimorphism in Asian elephants and isn't, it's not seemingly so pronounced in other elephants and other proboscideans? I asked Victoria Herridge, who's an expert on um, proboscidean evolution, I know, and um, had a bit of a conversation with her on Twitter. She's also uh, in charge of this Trowel Blazers organisation, which I meant to have some useful information on, but I didn't get around to Googling. Um, Victoria says, basically similar to what to what I said, that there's a whole load of unknowns here and a lot of study is needed to get to the bottom of why Asian elephants have got this, this dimorphism. But she directed me to a, a paper that was published last year by... Now, I mentioned research done by Raman Sukumar, which is published in a book that he did a couple of years ago on elephants. And there's a, this paper that came out in, in 2013. Sukumar is the second author. It's Chelio and Sukumar was published in Animal Behaviour. And they basically looked at three factors. Uh, the our bottom line is, I'm, I could d- meander all over the place here, as usual, but bottom line is that, that the conclusions of this paper and the general vibe of what they were saying does support what I was saying about the probable importance of the tusks in sexual selection, with there being evidence that tusk size is correlated with, with parasite load and therefore with genetic fitness, and with female choice um, probably having a selective pressure on male tusk size. However, it's more complicated than that because the presence of are you are you familiar with muff? I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It's impossible to pronounce. Muff. Muff, M-U- yeah. Do you know how to say it? M u s t h muff. This this like um weird uh, state of heightened sexual arousal that the elephants go into periodically. Uh, it's not kind of cyclical or seasonal. It, it, it seems to be kind of 
I don't know, I think it's behaviorally sort of contingent. It's totally random according to like how excited they get. They just go into this crazy um, state of arousal. Their, their like temporal gland swells up and they leak fluid out of it. It's called the musk gland. And, uh, and when an elephant is in musk, um, they are far stronger and like psyched up than they are normally. And a male elephant in musk can more easily defeat in combat one that isn't in, in musk, even if the other one is like physically, normally would have the upper hand in terms of body size and stuff. So, and they found, this study found that musk was the mo most important thing in determining the outcome of combat, male-male combat. Then body size was the next most important thing. And then tusk size was actually the least important thing in determining combat. But nevertheless, they did say that tusk size was part of this whole, basically that it was sexually selected for. So, um, but... Victoria reminds me that, that Asian elephants are weird in general in any way, males and females, because there are some populations where more than more than 90% of males are tuskless. So um, bottom line is, yes, this research kind of backs up what I was saying about tusks, tusk dimorphism being something to do with sexual selection. But the real bottom line is nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows what's going on. And it's all very confusing. And there's hardly any research done on it whatsoever. And basically, there's like a, there's like a PhD's amount of research that needs doing on that subject. So I wanted to touch on that to follow up from last time. Um, can we say Cryptozoologicon was covered by in, in a fantastic article on io9. Yeah, um, which I was really pleased at the coverage. Um, I'm sure you were as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Did you read uh, the comments? No. I, no. I started, I, <laughs> I saw one that was like, nee, 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 and I thought, what am I doing? Why am I reading the yeah, comments? Yeah. That's exactly, exactly my thoughts as well. Although I did end up checking them out. But yeah, a basic rule of thumb, if you're ever on the internet, don't read comments. Just don't. <laughs> it's, really, it's really bad for you. Um, except on Tetrapodology, where they are always... Uh, gen well, apart from when one or two crazy sharp, generally they are they are friendly and um, and useful, and people get a lot out of it. But I would say something like IO9, loads of sites that I think are brilliant and informative sites. It's just the comments, just what is there's a name for it? Not not the um, not like any of the you know the the known social phenomena. What's it called? Dunning Kruger. Not not those kind of things. But I just mean the general uh, being an a-hole on the internet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the general unpleasantness that that allows people to hide behind anonymity and come in and flail around like morons and think that they can just get. Eh, I'm cleverer than you. Yeah. These guys are idiots because they didn't know about me. Nee, nee, nee. That's <laughs> yes. just come on. I haven't read the book, <laughs> and I barely read the summary of the book. However. <laughs> I feel fairly yeah. confident in saying that the, the authors are complete idiots and didn't think of this, 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 and this, and this. So, talking about complete idiots and that sort of thing. Uh, so, so, the IO9 article. Oh, first of all, two things. First of all, so that's about cryptozoology. So, brilliant article. Read the IO9 article on the cryptozoological if you haven't already. Cryptozoology leads me to, I just want to mention the fact that there's, there's a, a new science magazine out called Science Uncovered. And um, I, I've been writing for them, and I've got uh, an article in the most recent issue on cryptozoology, and it covers. Um, I haven't seen it yet, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going. <laughs> Apart from the fact that I obviously submitted the initial text some weeks ago, the only thing I'm going from is like a, 
uh, a ghetto scan, a photograph I've seen on Twitter. <laughs> but um, in the article, I cover basically how new techniques, especially genetic um, molecular uh, analysis, is being used to test some claims associated with cryptozoology. I talk about the the Brian Sykes project on um, Bigfoot and Yeti, which obviously everyone in cryptozoology has been talking about for quite a while now. I also talk about the the British Lynx paper that I published with Max Blake and Ross Barnett and other people. And also, now this is the novel thing, mm-hmm. I also talk about something called eDNA, environmental DNA, which if you're interested in conservation biology and basically biological sampling, um, and also about things to do with um, the the whole field of um, basically checking which species are in which area for reasons to do with like development and, and that kind of stuff. I forget the name right now for that whole field, but you know, there's loads of people employed in that. Um, you increasingly study eDNA, environmental DNA, which means that, that people can now take samples from uh, groundwater, um, soil, ice, um, cave sediment, pond water, and even seawater, and they can extract DNA of uh, organisms living in the environment. They've been doing this for a while, and uh, it's now like routine. It's a really important thing. So here in here in the UK, a thing that ecologists are concerned about all the time is, you know, people are always trying to fill in ponds or get rid of ponds and that kind of stuff to build houses or roads or whatever. So then there are a number of endangered species that you need to check for the presence of. Great Crested Newt, classic example, the GCN, the Great Crested Newt. So you go to these these sites, are there GCNs at this site? Well, you don't need to actually spend ages trying to catch them anymore. You can just take a sample of of the sediment or the water and uh, analyze it in the lab, and that will tell you whether you've got new DNA there or not. And the DNA comes from feces, it comes from sloth skin cells, it will come from their saliva or mucus in the water, all those kinds of things. And um, so it's one of those kind of logical progression things. It's like, wow, if people can do it on little ponds, well, do we, can we detect DNA with enough sensitivity to find it in, the, in lakes and rivers and, and opens, the open sea and so on? And as techniques have improved and as techniques for, um, um, uh, as basically replication techniques to recover DNA samples have, have improved, people have you know, gotten better and better at this and they now are at the stage where they can take samples of open ocean water and um, detect the presence of species that are really rare or um, there's a couple of papers published 2012 and 2013 where people took water samples off the coast of Europe and in the well in, in the Baltic and they found evidence for um, they found DNA traces of fish and cetaceans that have been suggested to be present in the area you know there are eyewitness accounts rare eyewitness accounts of them but um they found the dna for them as well so it's like wow these things you know so far as we can tell from the dna they are that this confirms their presence so obviously this has a huge potential as goes um trying to find you know cryptic and and even unknown species you know you might say you can't find an unknown species by its dna but of course you can get traces of you know you can say oh this is a primate or this is a cow or this is a fish or whatever mm. so um yeah we i did, cover all that in the article too we did talk about that in episode three didn't we um the bigfoot episode bigfoot special did i we, think we did talk did about we... edna in that oh well in that case so people <laughs> people heard it here first <laughs> <laughs> yeah, scoops by myself. What an idiot! And the fact that it's called eDNA, which spells Edna, makes it impossible to uh, 
to Google. Can somebody please invent a better acronym for environmental DNA? Um, so, so, uh, so that was the first thing I wanted to talk about to do with bouncing off Cryptozoologicon. Are you aware of, have you watched the, um, the uh, Bill Nye versus Ken Ham creationism debate? I didn't watch it because I figured I'd find it quite frustrating. Uh, did you watch it? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I watched chunks. It's like two and a half hours, so I watched it in yeah, bits over days. Yeah. And then I read the follow-up and everything. Right, so give us your rundown. What do you think? Um, ooh, well, um, I, don't know, I don't know where to start because there's so much I want to say and I don't want to talk about it for that long. Um, I would say that, okay, Ken Ham... Um, I mean, part part of the whole part of the whole. Um, I, I'll say to start with that obviously Bill Nye presents a pretty compelling case based on you know, uh, well we use evidence and evidence and evidence and evidence to come to these conclusions, and so far as we can tell, all the evidence we have backs up the idea that the Earth is old and there was no magical creation event five thousand, six thousand years ago, whatever, and creationism basically involves distortion of the truth, and then you know Ken Ham says, well I don't care what you say. It's all in this book called the Bible, and that's what I'm going to go by, and it doesn't matter what evidence you present. And he presented this really strange – I've got to apologize to people listening to this that have heard this a thousand times before because it's obviously been thrashed out online to death. But um, um, Ham basically said that, that there's real science – what he called observational science is the stuff that you can like observe now, and we can't argue as to you know, the – the force of gravity and chemical reactions and that sort of thing. Uh, but when it comes to anything in the past that we didn't see, well, man, nobody saw that. So it's, how yeah. do you even know it's true? Basically what he wouldn't say, but what um, he should have been made to say is he's basically saying that magic operated in the past. So that if trees today grow a ring every year, and yet if there's trees that have got like, you know, equivalent to 9,000 rings or whatever, He's saying that in the past it could have been different. So a tree, could, a tree could have been created with all of its rings in place. That's what he's saying. He's saying that magical events explain this illusion of of age. And I think he should have been kind of pressed on that because that is his point. His point is saying he's saying observational science versus historical science. He's saying they're different things, and the rules were different in the past. He kept on saying the rules were different in the past. You don't know that the rules were the same as they are today. But what he is actually saying is that magical events happened in the past that we can't, that we haven't seen. Magical Ye events explain. Yeah, but that is kind of creationism in a nutshell, anyway. Magical events, right? Well, you know that. I know that, and anyone informed about this debate knows that. But I think that some of the people that need to be swayed. Need to be it needs to be made clear that do you understand these guys are saying that that there were, that there is no proper explanation for the extent of the universe and the fact that galaxies are spreading out and and uh, uh, the fact that there are trees older than the biblical account of creation and all and all this stuff uh, and there are ice cores you know um, Bill Nye spoke about the the uh, age of ice cores um, it just needs to be hammered home that you know do you realize people like ken ham are saying this is they're just talking about talking about magic and and there's a bit at the end or of the, like, as the, they can be called miracles darren which are great things yes miracles, <laughs> yes, miracles yes which 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 is magic i mean let's let's well, let's yeah, face of course. It exactly. that's the point that's um, the point so uh yeah i'm not convinced that's going to sway anyone because i think that's in some ways attractive isn't it 
that there was magic in the past. I don't know whether that's a. But when you because I think that the... the problem with this debate of a lot of the time, and although you know there there are exceptions, of course, but is that everyone's just talking past each other. They're talking the the things yeah. different people care about are just so drastically different that these um these debates don't have much intersection. You know, they're not talking about yeah. the same thing. Um, and I, I, this is what I heard about this debate, and I didn't watch it, is that there wasn't actually much debate. There was one person getting up and saying a bunch of stuff and another person getting yeah. up and saying a bunch of stuff. And there wasn't, yeah. you know, much much back and forth or intersection between what they were saying. I, I think no, that's that's... true. But, yeah, but Ken, Ken Ham, the creationist guy, did start off by saying that his whole premise was that, you know, you've all been led to believe that science belongs to secularists and that creationists can't do science. Well, yeah. here's three people or four people I know that are creationists and also, and then he, and he did show some people that did seem to be true, honest, you know, young earth people that, um, that also were involved in, you know, big science, proper science. They had invented significant stuff. And his, so his point is saying that you can be a scientist and you can know all this stuff and yet still be a believer in a young earth model but i but my point is that you need to let people know that well that's not true because if you're going to accept the rules of like how things work in the present day then the stuff that he and his buddies pr promote it requires just full-on crazy nonsense and they play to religious people by saying that you know you can only be like properly religious if you believe in this stuff whereas that's patently untrue because they're in young earth creationists are in a massive minority when it comes to religious people because you know i'm an atheist i think you're an atheist as well but i don't deny that people can be true believers in you know all the religious stuff and yet still have a perfectly well, mostly perfectly. That's a bit of a <laughs> it's it's a bit of a mess that I don't want to discuss right now. But um, but basically, you can you can believe in gods and and a god and that, that kind of stuff, and still have a worldview that is perfectly cognizant with everything we understand about the universe. So at the end of the debate, you know, they're both asked what would change your mind, and now creationists lie all the time by saying that 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 evolution is a belief system. It's a religion, and. Yeah, you know, I, I want it to be more widely known. That is a, a barefaced lie because rabbits in the Cambrian, these kind of things. Bill Nye said, and I, I would agree with him, and I'm sure most most of us would most of us that promote evolution would would um, would believe would would accept this as well. Is that it would take evidence to overturn our views if someone could show show evidence that evolution you know hadn't occurred or we'd all been fooled or something. We would change our views. Definitely would. Whereas, of course, conversely. People like Ken Ham, they're not going to change their views because they're saying, "No, we're sticking, we're sticking to this. Uh, what's in this? What's in this book that we uh, that we trust?" So, um, yeah. and we're not just that; yeah. we're sticking to our crazy interpretation of this book yeah. that we trust. You know, it's not even the most logical interpretation. Even if you ignore all the science, everything, their interpretation is pretty uh, was fairly wacky. I think. Um, I agree. Yeah. So, and one more thing I want to say, and that, that, that those the things we've just covered, those concern the technicalities of the debate. But so a lot of people said this debate was a really bad idea uh, because you know putting a create you know debating a creationist implies that there is a, something to debate and that they are on equal footing to people who actually do real science. But um, 
the way a de- it, this is a really interesting thing. The way that a debate is in quotes one depends on really shallow, stupid stuff because we are so not John and I, <laughs> but people in general. Everyone really, else, everyone else, everybody else. Yeah, is is really, really. We are so stupid in terms of how we. Um, uh, like how we come away with with perceptions, because we base our conclusions on people's winning ability or their dominance or whatever, according to stuff like body language and the tone of their voice and how shifty their eyes are, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And um, so I would say that in that debate, Ken Ham comes out as this like real shifty kind of little yes, evil little character who's always lurking in the background, eyes darting furtively from side to side, <laughs> sort of rubbing his hands. I'm sorry, it's true, you watch it. Whereas Bill Nye comes across as like, you know, confident and, uh, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He's, and all the time when Ken Ham is speaking, Bill Nye is like looking at him with a sort of, kind of with a look of polite, I'm listening to you thing going on, but also with a, did you just see that? <laughs> kind of, and and as a result, I would say I, I said this on Don Prothero's um, wall on Facebook that if you watched the whole debate with the sound off, didn't listen to a single word, I didn't try and lip read or anything, you know, if you didn't listen to the words, I would say that in my opinion, um, Bill Nye really in quotes one because he just comes across as the as the good, likable person, whereas Ken Ham, well. T- Maybe I'm biased here, I don't know, but I just thought that in body language and the way he conveyed himself and his general appearance, it's like he did not look like a sort of... There we have it, Absolutely watertight case for evolution. Ken Ham looked a bit more shifty than Bill Nye in the debate, and therefore evolution. (laughs) Yes, and therefore evolution. So remember that, remember that next time you do it on stage. But next time I give a talk, I'm going to deliberately look furtive and shifty and squint a lot and see if that, see if Rub people hate me. Rub your hands together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, I think we should move there's on. There's loads of other stuff. <laughs> there's loads of other stuff we want to talk about, but uh, new things that have come out. But um, yeah, we need to get on to the questions. Yeah, don't we, we do need to get on to the questions. So I'm going to start with the biggies first. <clears throat> there are biggies? Um, well... Some people gave more money than others, let's say. So <laughs> they get their questions now answered come, first. Just, just, wait, now we come to the... Three, two, one. Cash for Cash questions! questions! <laughs> Se- section of the podcast. Yeah. Right. So shall I just start with the first question? Let's go then. Why are there no primates in North America or Europe? In Asia, there are several species of amp- alpine and temperate primates. So why isn't so it isn't the habitat that is unsuitable? Who's question from? Oh, sorry. Yes, now, good reading of cash questions. This is Christian Mulally. Right. Yeah. Who, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> I I I don't know. Right. Well, I reckon, and uh, I don't reckon. I know. Fact. Know. Fact. Got an answer on this one. This is one of those. Um, um, uh, selective filtration through extinction things that there are certain areas that kind of had animals originally but then lost them due to extinctions ancient or recent and as a result we're left with a modern world that has an impoverished fauna. and we kind of think that's the way things are so so europe yeah why doesn't europe have primates 
when there's loads of them, it's non-human primates, when there's loads of them in Africa and Asia. Well, Europe did have loads of primates, but a series of uh, extinction events removed them from European ecosystems. So as recently as the Miocene, there was this event known as the Miocene Thermal Optimum, when, you know, nice kind of tropical African-style conditions were present across much of Europe, and there was an extremely diverse... The Miocene is sometimes described as like the, the heyday of mammal diversity, when, you know, no end of artiodactyls and prisdactyls and carnivorans and such. Um, in, in Miocene Europe, you've got this, like, really diverse... Uh, a, a sort of mammal fauna, mega mammal fauna that you, was, that you would associate, you know, with like modern Africa or Asia. You had all that kind of stuff in, in Europe. And in mice in Europe, you've got quite a diversity of apes. You've got, um, and, and monkeys, apes and monkeys. So among the apes, you've got the famous Dryopithecus, which is uh, a hominid of, of some sort, maybe, maybe a member of the orangutan lineage, maybe not, maybe outside the clade that includes orangutans and hominins. You've got um, Oreopithecus, this like bipedal um, island endemic taxon. And these animals are still alive like only 7 million years ago. So there's a variety of climbing, um, arboreal and terrestrial and semi-terrestrial apes in Europe as recently as the late Miocene. And then in the Pliocene and Pleistocene, you've still got a diversity of monkeys hanging around. And you've still got um, macaques, which are among the most cool adapted of living primates. Macaques were still present in um, <clears throat> northern Europe. I think Germany and France still has them as recently as the Pleistocene. There's a possible British record even of a Pleistocene macaque. So I would say based on those records and others. Um, oh, and there are members of the Columbine lineage in uh, the Pliocene of Europe as well. So, so Europe did have a diverse primate fauna. Uh, climatic conditions deteriorate, obviously, after the, the Miocene. Conditions become cooler and more seasonal during the Pliocene, obviously, the Pleistocene. Um, so that kind of made the, you know, knocked a lot of these lineages out through extinction. And the fact that you have macaques hanging on until the Pleistocene, and that, that's kind of like the edge of recent history, um, quite why the last macaques did, did die out in the Pleistocene, I don't, I don't really know, presumably due to uh, glaciation events but um you know we've got them at the edge of europe we've got um the the so-called barbary macaques on um gibraltar have been introduced from morocco and there are still um native macaques in in morocco which is obviously at the edge at the edge of europe so um we kind of should have them but it's things like you know if if the if the mediterranean dried up a bit and the um the Gibraltar Straits were crossable again, we'd get macaques back into the Iberian Peninsula. And, um, and we'd probably have them coming over from Europe, as, uh, for Asia as well. Uh-huh. What about North America? Because it's still connected to South America. So that's, so that's Europe. Yes. So Europe should have them. Um, so similar kind of extinction filtration uh, thing going on with North America. North America, again, had extremely diverse primate assemblage prior to the Oligocene, although I should say there is this, the groups concerned belong to kind of more, um, maybe lemur branch kind of primates, and some people uh, include some of the animals concerned that plesiodapiforms, those kind of like sort of squirrely type proto-primates, some people actually exclude them from primates proper. But um, um, yeah, they were around until the Oligocene. The last one is... Uh, I think it's from the late Legacy, and it's got the brilliant name Akamawi Chachala, which is a 
very memorable. It, it's <laughs> I think it's Sue, Lakota Sue, and it means something like Little Cat Man, Gamawi <laughs> Chachala. And there's a there's a I, I meant to check. I've got Evolution of Tertiary Mammals in North America, Volume One, right next to me now, edited by Christine Janice, Kathleen Scott, and Lou Jacobs. But um, <clears throat> uh, there's even there's a tribe named after you know a, a tribe is like a, a an old-fashioned Linnaean rank that's underneath subfamily. There's a tribe called the yeah. Ekamawi Cheshalini or something like that for that includes Ekamawi Cheshala and its kid. Anyway, um, I don't know why. And I don't know if any I don't know anybody I don't know if anybody knows why, but these endemic North American primates became extinct at the end of the Oligocene or after the uh, Oligocene. I don't know why. Changing climatic events or whatever. Um, and other kinds of primates never did get in to North America. So South American primates have are of African origin. And they have rafted across the Atlantic, as ridiculous as it sounds. That's the only thing that, that, that can explain this. They have rafted across from, from Africa. Although historically it was suggested, I mean, it was suggested as recently as the 1960s that the South American primates, the platyrines, it was suggested that they may actually have descended from Ekamawi um, Shishala style North American primates, so that nobody accepts that today, to my knowledge. Um, but the South American primates, obviously, they got into. Um, Central America, and there's a major, major radiation of them in the Caribbean as well. <clears throat> but I don't think, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think they ever got, but they didn't ever get into North America, so we don't have platyrines in North America. Um, and old world monkeys have never gotten into North America, and nor have apes until humans did so within the past few years. <laughs> Darren, Darren. <laughs> I think you're forgetting one very prominent primate. Here we go. Here we go. Go on. <laughs> Bigfoot. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Which for which there's loads of evidence and which is undoubtedly real. Hmm. Um, well, there's all those footprints, man. Who'd fake those? Who would fake those? Well, yeah, they're obviously real because there's loads of them. Um, yeah. So if Sasquatch, if Sasquatch really is a, a, a hominid, a member of the orangutan lineage or whatever, you know, that's, that's, that's in keeping with the Gigantopithecus, Gigantopithecus uh, hypothesis, then it would have to have crossed Beringia, have to have gotten in via Beringia across the Bering Land Bridge and walked down. But mm. there's, there's, um, there's a few mentions here and there of an alleged Homo erectus specimen from Mexico now, I read about that, first of all, in Jeff Meldrum's book on Sasquatch, and I've since read one technical paper that refers to it as well. But I think it's, well, it's either ignored or it's regarded as not credible. But I'm curious as to what the deal is with that one. I mean, you go back to the early 1900s, people did refer to human skulls from North America as Neanderthaloid. They thought they had, like, their own North American Neanderthal type hominins which again nobody accepts that today neanderthals and, and other closely related hominins are exclusively old world but um <clears throat> who's to say what we'll find out in the future mm. but for now i don't know for now um yeah just primates old world primates just didn't get into north america apart from until humans did and apart from this controversial record of a possible homo erectus <laughs> And apart, of course, from Sasquatch. Yeah. 
and the mer beings. <laughs> <laughs> Did we cover that in the Cryptozoologicon, or is that in Volume Two? Mer beings. I think it's in Volume Two, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's in Volume Two. Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's so move for on. For those Let's who don't on. know. Yeah. Okay. On. For those who don't say, know. For those, for those people who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, there's there's a there's a whole bunch of uh, cryptozoological stuff by Mark Hall. <laughs> and um, Lauren Coleman and so on, where they actually suggest that, um, like the chupacabra and the uh, oh, what's it called that lizard man type creature, scape, sca- scape, or or scape, squumps, mm, or swamp, oh, I can't remember, whatever. They suggest that a whole bunch of like weird pseudo reptilian, semi aquatic, amphibious kind of humanoid creatures reported in the paranormal literature. Are actually aquatic primates. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a nice theory. Um, <laughs> it's a hypothesis. No, no, I think it's I think it's it's fairly solid now, isn't it? We'll, we'll elevate that to theory. You know, lots of supporting evidence. Um, right. Let's move on then. So it's another one from Christian Muir. Yeah. Why did ground sloths never make it? It's quite similar, actually. Why did ground sloths never make it to the old world and woolly rhinoceroses... Rhinoceroses? Rhinoceros. He says rhinoceros. Um, make it to the new. There were ground sloths in Alaska and woolly rhinoceros in the... Kamchakta? Yeah, Kamchatka Kam- Peninsula and Siberia. Kamchatka. Kamchatka. Yeah. I've never tried to say it. What stopped them from crossing Beringia? Mm. Well, this one's much easier to answer. We don't know. There's no, <laughs> there's no good answer for this, and and he's just covered basically everything we know in that question. It's weird. Ground sloths were in the Yukon and Alaska, and they never, so far as we know, they never got into Siberia. Is that poor sampling? Is it just because we haven't found enough fossils of the right age? Well, that's kind of doubtful because actually we have got a lot of stuff and a lot of very well preserved stuff from the Kamchatka region, from northeast Siberia. You know, there's like tundra-preserved uh, mammoths and, and other animals as well. Um, don't know. Just don't know. Nobody has come up with a good a good answer for this. Lazy. So didn't want to walk. Yeah. Didn't want to walk lazy, despite the fact that they'd gotten all the way from South America to Alaska. <laughs> well, they were like, tired, nah. weren't they? They were yeah, tired. A couple more kilometres, I can't be bothered. <laughs> And then the same, the same vice versa. Why are there some old world taxa like woolly rhinos that just don't make it into North America? And we just don't have a good answer. There's no answer. The, now, people have, of course, come up with answers, but they're totally speculative. And the answers that I've read in things like Valerius Geist touches on this in Deer of the World, and it's been mentioned in a few Pleistocene books as well. Some people have suggested that maybe there was some kind of um, pandemic or some kind of like, you know, pathogens or parasites that, that meant that they couldn't survive for long in this alien environment. Mm. Um, and Geist bases this on his observations of North American and Asian moose, which look kind of different. You can tell them apart if you know what to look for. 
And when they've been apart for, you know, not long, however many thousands of years that the, uh, the Bering Straits have actually separated uh, North America and Asia. But if you take an, an Alaskan moose into the old world or vice versa, these animals don't persist in captivity for as long as they should. He says that they die unusually young for unknown mysterious reasons. Because bear in mind, you know, nowadays people are quite familiar with the idea that if an animal dies in captivity, then some kind of work is done to determine the cause of its death. But historically, 50, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, even 30 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, people didn't and often couldn't do this. The animals died. Why is it died? I don't know. It's just dead. Okay. Feed it to lions. End of story. So he says there are these mysterious deaths of moose. Um, I'm talking about Alces, Alces, because I know there's various different common names of this animal, elk or whatever. Ah, what a whole can of worms that is. Um, um, yeah, he says that, that basically what he's implying is that there's some mystery parasite or microorganism or whatever that, that causes the deaths of these animals when they're taken into unfamiliar territory. There's some, there's some like, active pathogen operating in Eurasia, if you're an American moose, and in North America, if you're a, a uh, an old world, a Eurasian one. <clears throat> and <clears throat> who, I don't know, no work's been done on this door, like it's only a throwaway speculation, and that's the only thing, to my knowledge, people have come up with to explain this weird... Um, well, yeah, but uh, is it weird? And this is absolutely. why, you know, a lot of the time you've got to ask whether an explanation is even necessary, because animals have ranges, right? Some of them just aren't going to go some places for whatever reason. There's just yeah. like a, yeah. it's no, it doesn't have to be a big reason. It doesn't have to be an overarching reason. It just didn't happen. Like, because the world isn't homogenous, we can always pick an area and say, why aren't there such and such there? Um, and, you know, in this case, it's um, rhinoceroses and um, ground sloths. But um, what if there was something else, you know? It doesn't matter which one it was, we'd ask about that particular one. There might not be a particular reason for those particular attacks that are not making it somewhere else. It might just be, that's just just that's just that's chance for you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, well, that's fine as well. Contingency. Um, so that's another, that's yeah. another factor. I should say, sorry, I said that the microorganism, parasite, whatever thing is the only thing that's been suggested. It's not. People have also suggested that the just ecology of the region, region wasn't an it didn't have the right kind of flora or cover or whatever. Or, yeah. I mean, animals are sensitive to lots of things that we often don't appreciate. You know, some animals, for example, some animals like a fox, if it's running around a field, it won't run in a diagonal line to the middle of the field. It will say hug the hedges around the edges, right? The kind of yeah. hypothetical aside. So there are some animals won't move across, say, open areas when they don't, detect enough like tree cover that sort of thing so hypothetically you could imagine that there are you know biome differences different e ecological differences that could also mean that the animals just thinking i'm not going to bother to walk across those few hundreds of meters or or few kilometers or whatever so maybe that's a factor as well because <clears throat> surely if you get out onto the actual if you imagine the beringian land bridge what it would have been like Big, fairly flat area. I mean, I'm sure it would have had, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of vegetation um, at at times. But wouldn't it have been like really chilly, <laughs> really windy? <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm not walking across there. Here in Alaska, it's all snuggly, but out there, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So, so the go. answer there is we don't know, but there's possible reasons. We don't know. We don't Either know, there isn't knows. a reason or there is and we don't know it. That's good. And it's also yeah, one of those, yeah, it's, it's one of those dangerous things as well where, you know, people will say, ah, none of those in region X. And then next week someone publishes a paper saying, first yeah. Tobo never sloughed from <laughs> Siberia or something. So. <laughs> yeah. And then everything changes. Right, so what are we up to? Third question. <laughs> the cash oh, wow, we've got through three. Wow, yeah. that's great. We're up to the third cash for question, which isn't a question. It's a, it's, um, it's a request, I guess. Um, so Sean Willett wants us to talk about my some of my favourably named animals, although I'm sure everyone's going to say I pronounce it wrong. Mm. He wants to talk us about... Talk us, he wants to talk us about... He wants us to talk about... The large-bodied silly sword that was just published. Silly sword, <laughs> you idiot! <laughs> Everybody knows it's. I think it's. I think it's silosaurid. Silly sword. Silosaurid. The the, the large-bodied silosaurid. All right. Do you want to talk about it? Because I'm sure you know a lot about it. I know absolutely nothing about it. Right. Well, it's a paper published um, in Gondwana Research by Paul Barrett and a couple of colleagues. And I went to get the P. I think I'm sure I have the paper somewhere. I tried to find the PDF this morning and I couldn't, but whatever. Um, so this is um, the latest publication um, by Barrett and, and various colleagues on the Mandabed um, Triassic archosaurs from Tanzania. Now, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Tanzania. Is that right? Yeah. Because I've been to a couple of talks where I heard people say, Tanzania. <laughs> sure, I'm sure it's Tanzania. Anyway, it's Tanzania. Tanzania's got this. If you're Australian, the, the it's Tanzania. Tanzania. <laughs> um, middle Triassic beds, the Manda beds, they've been famous, famous in quotes, inverted paleontology, since the 1950s, uh, due in part to. Uh, Alan Charrick, formerly the late Alan Charrick, formerly of the Natural History Museum, um, for you know his reporting of a number of new archosaurs, which in the 50s and 60s, he wrote, Charrick wrote a lot of books and did a lot of stuff on TV, and he was always saying how these Mandabed archosaurs were like integral to dinosaur origins. In particular, he always spoke about one, Mandasuchus, which today we would call a Rausukian, one of these, you know, crocline uh, predatory archosaurs. Um, and he was doing all this work kind of before um you know Gautier and other guys came up with this came up with this far better you know well supported idea that crown archosaurs there's like a croc line and a, and a dinosaur bird line which would mean that you know a Rausukian isn't much relevant to dinosaur origins so um but anyway Charig was always talking about Mandasuchus the Mandabeds are now known to have quite a diverse archosaur fauna because as well as Mandasuchus this like big Rausukian type animal which still has to be properly described there's also um, one of these sail-backed crocline archosaurs, sail-backed Ralsukian, uh, this group called the Tinosauriscids, one of those called Hypsilorhacus, known from its, you know, incredible tall-spined vertebrae. And there's a couple of others. There's also what uh, a thing published last year, uh, Niassosaurus, another taxon originally worked on by Charig, but he never got around to publishing it properly. It wasn't published until, you know like I say last year, Paul Barron and colleagues, um, they say that it probably is a really early dinosaur. So in this fauna, you've got a couple of different lineages of Rausukians, early dinosaurs, 
Um, and they're saying now that you've got Silosaurids in the fauna as well. And this new Silosaurid that they report, that's only a partial femur, but it's got several characteristic features that show that it's a Silosaurid femur, and it's partial. But the whole femur would have been approximately 34.5 centimetres long. Now, for a Silosaurid, that's huge. That puts this animal, like as I haven't read the paper, so I don't know if they come up with a total length, but total ballpark estimate, I would say that a quadrupedal archosaur with a, with a femur about 30 centimetres long, 30 centimetres long, you're talking about an animal that's what, you know, three and a half metres long-ish, that kind of size. Yeah, well, um, I'm, looking at the, yeah. Um, I'm looking at the silhouette here in the abstract. Um, yeah, looks about three metres long. Okay. Obviously, it's a yeah. it's a silhouette. I don't know how accurate it is, but yeah, that's sort of the yeah. Look yeah. At. So, bit of background. I mean, we should, what are silosaurids? So, people have known for for a while, certainly since the nineteen sixties, that <clears throat> dinosaurs proper are preceded in the fossil record by a number of mostly Middle Triassic archosaurs, mostly South American. Marasuchus is the most famous one, which are long-legged, bipedal, probably carnivorous, at cursorial archosaurs. Um, so given that within dinosaurs, people have historically imagined theropods to be the most primitive kind of, you know, that it's always been assumed that's the ancestral morphology for, for theropods, for, for dinosaurs, sorry. The thinking has been that, ah, animals like Marasuchus show that the dinosaur lineage going back into the middle Triassic and going back into the early Triassic as well, these early kind of dinosaur prototypes were leggy, cursorial, bipedal predators, animals we're talking about less than 40 centimetres long. Um, Marasuchus and its relatives are united with dinosaurs in a collection called the Dinosauriforms. And then there's, some, um, there's another group that also are long-legged um, Cursorial, or they've got their high names are really weird. A group called the Lagopetids, which appear to be kind of outside dinosauriforms, and Lagopetids plus dinosauriforms are called dinosauromorphs. So, based on what we know, you did this last time. Don't laugh just because there's all these stupid names. It's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> you remember Pliosauromorphs and Plesiosauromorphs and Plesiosauroids and Pliosauroids and Euplesiosaurs from. Well, that was probably episode one. Anyway, you could do this with any group of animals nowadays. So yes. Dinosauromorpha includes dinosauriforms. Dinosauriforms includes Marasuchus and, and dinosaurs. And based on Lagopetids, based on Marasuchus, based on theropods, people have thought, ah, the whole lineage consists of bipedal cursorial predators. So, bam, bam, in your face, Silosaurids. Silosaurids are published, <laughs> and it's like, what? Yes, these animals have a load of characters that put them close to dinosaurs. They're within dinosaur forms. They're within the clade that includes Marasuchus and dinosaurs, but they're not leggy, bipedal, predatory um, um, type archosaurs. They are almost certainly quadrupedal. They've got, you know, their, their, their limb proportions indicate they're running around on all fours. They've got really long forelimbs and their teeth and the shapes of their jaws indicate they are omnivores or herbivores. So this caused a bit of a rethink because it's like, well, hold on. All these assumptions about dinosaurs coming from a lineage of bipedal carnivores, maybe that maybe we were wrong because, you know, there's three lineages of dinosaurs after all. Okay? We know that early ornithischians and early, early sauropodomorphs are theropod-like ish in general form you know early sauropodomorphs and ornithischians are bipedal things that probably could eat animals mm. that may have been omnivor omnivorous 
So now there's kind of a bit of a rethink. That has been for a while. Maybe, uh, you know, dinosaur ancestors were... I don't know, maybe there was a little bit of quadrupedality going on there. Maybe they were less strongly committed to bipedality than we thought. And maybe they weren't carnivorous. Maybe they were omnivorous or herbivorous. So, so Silosaurids, this dinosaur-like group of dinosauriforms adapted for quadrupedality and with teeth and jaw adaptations indicating herbivory or omnivory. And the Silosaurids that we know of prior to this new paper are smallish. They're like about, you know, a meter, a meter and a half less than two meters, that kind of size. They're known from, Silosaurus is obviously from what used to be called Silesia in, in Poland. And then there's one called Asilisaurus from Tanzania, published a couple of years ago. Asilisaurus. <laughs> well, I remember calling it that in a radio interview and then thinking afterwards, it's probably not right. Then there's a couple from, from North America that were confused with dinosaurs for a while. So we know of quite a few Silosaurids now. Now, in the Middle Triassic, as everybody knows, the d dinosaurs and their close relatives, dinosaur forms um, and dinosaur morphs, you know, Lagopitas as well, these animals are s relatively small, furtive animals that appear to be quite rare in their faunas. They're scurrying around in the undergrowth, you know, nibbling on a little bit of whatever. Whereas <laughs> the big, the big badasses out in the open, the big like animals that are in quotes controlling the the, the the, uh, the resources are crocline archosaurs, so giant Rausukians, and big herbivorous armor-plated aetosaurs, and members of uh, a few other closely related lineages as well. Um, and the general picture at the moment is that the the action in archosaurs is happening in crocline archosaurs in the middle Triassic and to an extent in the late Triassic as well. And dinosauromorphs and dinosauriforms are small furtive animals living, scurrying around in the shadows. And then it isn't until you have a couple of extinction events in the late Triassic that knock out most crocline arcs or lineages that dinosaurs are actually able to um, uh, diversify and evolve larger body size. That's the general picture. And Silosaurids fit into that because, as I said, we're learning they're increasingly diverse, increasingly widespread, but they're mostly small. So they're a group that's apparently in quotes, living in the shadow of the dinosaurs. That's how many times have we seen that phrase in books. Mm. But now, what I want to know, now this, this new big silosaurid kind of throws a proverbial wrench, <laughs> spanner. <laughs> spanner. So Americans don't know the word spanner, so spanner in the works. Does that make any sense? Spanner I'm in sure the they can we... figure it out. I think our American <laughs> listeners are, you know, Sorry. reasonably intelligent. <laughs> Um, yeah, so if the, but if there's a big Silosaurid, okay, three-ish meters long is not huge, given that there are Aetosaurs and Rausukians twice that size and more. But this, this is one of those things that adds increasing complexity to the picture because, well, you've got, I, I don't, like I said, I haven't read the paper. I, I'd like to know what, what Barrett and colleagues make of this. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, always with things like this, I just think, wow, the world is complicated and there's always lots of different things going on in different places. So, but it would seem that in the Amanda beds, middle Triassic of Tanzania, there are small furtive dinosaurs like Nyasasaurus. There are big nasty Rausukians like Mandasuchus. There are small Silosaurids, as in less than that one and a half meters total length, but there's also like reasonably big Silosaurids. So, hey, there's room for everyone, the more the merrier. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what I think about that. Okay, great. And someone needs to needs to find some other, you know, crocline or 
Oh, Birdline, Arkosaurs and name them Sensible Swords, please. <laughs> sensible Swords. <laughs> yeah. uh, name the Swords. <laughs> no, and, and I'm assuming, I am assuming that they haven't given this new one a name, given that it's only based on a partial femur. But, uh, um, yeah, I can't see a name in the abstract. Right. Okay, let's move along to question four. We actually have two more questions from... Uh, one person, Jinwi Tan, who, uh, the first one is, now that Pristicampsus, is that how you'd say it? Champsus? Pristicampsus? Pristicampsus. 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 Is a nomen dubium. Where mm. does that leave the concept of cusorial crocodiles? Do they really exist? Were they a clade? So... During the Paleogene, during the Paleocene and Eocene, there's this famous group of um, so-called land crocs or panzer crocs, crocodilians, right, not too distant, really, not too distantly related to modern crocodiles and alligators, which supposedly are strongly terrestrial. They have what's called the orenirostral or altirostral skull shape, which means that they're they're like this, John. All right. Yeah. Great. <laughs> la la yeah. Laterally compressed. The skull is the skull is relatively relatively deep and laterally compressed relative to that of like you know platyrostral crocs that we're more familiar with. They've got ziphodont teeth, which means their teeth are laterally compressed and serrated. They have um, hoof-like ungulates, so hoof-like claw bones, which are a pretty good indication of you know lots of terrestrial running around in an animal. So. Um, those features have all led to the general idea that these so-called pristicampsines are more terrestrial than the living crocs that we're used to. Now, the type species for this whole group of crocs, the pristicampsines, is pristicampsis rollinati from the Middle Eocene of France. And Chris Brochu, who, those of you who don't know, he's like a really well-known paleontologist who works on um, crocodiliforms. He's thought very highly of, you know, his paper's brilliant. He's does, done loads of work across a lot of uh, lineages. Um, he's been saying for a while that this type species for the whole group, Pristicampsus rollinati, he's been saying that the type material is non-diagnostic, therefore the species is what we call a nomendubium. This means that Pristicampsus itself is a nomendubium. Now, in his paper, which you can get for free, I googled it and found, and found it for free online. It's published in the um, um, the Earth and Environmental Science Transactions of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. There's a special edition, a Festschrift volume to the late Wan Langston. And uh, this, this paper by Brochu is one of several in there. Um, so he says in this paper that, uh, well, sorry, we've got to get rid of Pristicampsis. But because Pristicampsis is a well-known, classic, you know, well-used name, I'm going to quote him here. He says, I do not say this lightly. Pristicampsis is widely used. Its elimination may lead to confusion in the literature and, in all likelihood, my own violent death at the hands of my colleagues. Taxonomic stability should be promoted, and I would rather not be killed. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was, was quite funny of him. So, um, so he then discusses what, this, what do we actually do with, with, these, with these animals, because Pristicampsis rollinati is only one of several of these so-called Pristicampsines. We can't use the name Pristicampsini as a kind of, or Pristicampsidae as a, as a like lineage name, a clade name anymore, um, because the type species is non-diagnostic. The ITZ. Uh, yes, you can. Can't use it as a the family ITZ name, maybe, but you can just use it as the clade name. 
the ICZN basically recommends that you don't use super generic names for nomina based on nomina dubia. It's not a mandate, but it's a rejection. It's it's a it's a recommendation. Brochu actually specifically discuss, discusses this. The fact that it's not a mandate means that you're right. You can use it, and we know of cases where people do, even if the type of species is a nomina dubia, and people still do use the. The, uh, um, this is a whole big. This is a whole big bag of uh, hurt, though. It comes talking up, it about comes this subject, but the, I don't think the ICZN rules have really done a lot for taxonomic stability, in my opinion. It seems to be quite <laughs> messy, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know whether everyone should still be signed up to this. You can kind of come up with a good argument, basically supporting whatever you want, because the ICZN, in the end, it's only recommendations. It's it's often never, yeah. you know, hard rules and also whenever they're challenged about something okay you can rule for something to be changed to the ICZN but when they are challenged to say look you know can we not use this name they're saying eh, we don't really work. we don't really make decisions like that that's for you guys to do that's for working scientists to do so basically I maintain you may agree you may not I think that communities of researchers agree among themselves as to what is the best course of action for the for the purposes of ease of communication and in this particular case... Yes, I agree with that. Okay, in this particular case, Brochu is a very well-respected and, you know, he's, he's a guy who does good papers in good journals. This is not some throwaway line published in a non-peer-reviewed bit of grey literature, a magazine article or something, or a newspaper, or New Mexico Bulletin. Of, uh, um, <laughs> this is done in a, in, a, in a proper, like, you know, there's no doubt that this, his opinion carries some weight, you know. We, we respect this guy. And he says here that, he says, look, I know that Pristicamps has got a lot of baggage attached to it, and I know it's a good name, but I think that we should do the sensible thing here and just kill it. And it's not as if there aren't other names out there for this, this lineage, because in 1976, so there's a Chinese Pristicampsine called Planocrania, and since 1976, that taxon has been associated with its own lineage name, family name, Plano Cranidae, published by Lee, 1976, he says that, well, if we shouldn't use Pristicampsis, Pristicampsini, so we're going to go with Plano Cranidae. So that's what he does. So he calls these, the Pristicampsines, he now calls them Plano Cranids. So, um, and if Pristicampsis is non-diagnostic, if the type of species is non-diagnostic, well, what about the other taxa that are diagnostic that have been referred to Pristicampsis? Well, there is a name already out there. It's been kicking around since... Uh, I don't know since, it's been used for a while, I think since the 50s, Bovary Sucus. So things from the um, European things, like from Mesel and Geiseltal, not Geiseltal, but me the Mesel stuff from, from Germany, some paleogene things from, from France. Um, there's a North American animal which was described by Langston as a North American Pristicampsis. These animals are now included in Bovarisuchus. So Bovarisuchus and Planocrania are the, the Planocranias. And then there's a couple of other taxa as well that, that basically Brochu says require um, reassessment. There's some, some stuff from the Paleocene of Belgium and France. There's some Middle Eocene stuff from Kazakhstan that's really interesting. These probably represent additional Planocraniid uh, taxa. So, so yes, there is a Pristicampsine group. It's now called, according to Brochu, we should call it Planocraniids. And yes, these animals do have the characteristic features that you've always associated with Pristicampsines. 
the alterostral skull morphology. They do have hoof-like ungles. Um, what kind of crocs are they? Well, uh, in recent phylogenies, they they are within crown crocodilia. That is, they are within the clade that includes gurials, crocodiles, and, and alligators. And they probably are closely related to the clade called breverostries in brochus tr trees, which is the clade that includes crocodiloids and alligatoroids, but they're outside of that, that, that group. Oh, Quincana from Australia. This has been suggested by a researcher called Torsten Rossman. He suggested that Quincana is an Australian pristacampsine, which is contrary to what other croc workers have said. They've always regarded Quincana as a, um, as a member of the um, Mikasukine crocodiloid lineage. Mikasukines are this like, mostly Australian uh, lineage, really interesting crocs, some of which may have been not too dissimilar from like crocodilus crocs, and then you know they were amphibious ambush hunters. But others, there's one, there's a small one called Trilophosuchus, which has got adaptations suggesting durophagy, like you know crunching up mollusks and crabs and things. And it's even been suggested, Paul Willis, um, croc worker, suggested that it may have been capable of climbing which, of course, is very timely in view of the new paper that's just come out by Vladimir Dinets and colleagues on tree climbing and modern crocs. Um, um, Brochu argues, I totally agree with him on this, and I think most other workers do as well, Quincana is, is indeed a Mikasukine. It is not a planocrania. It is not a member of this Pristacampsine uh, lineage. And the, the similarities that have led to this idea are erroneous because alterostral skulls and zipodonts-type type, type teeth have evolved several times in, in crocs. So mm. pristacampsines are close. Sorry, planocranids. Planocranids. <laughs> yeah, they're united by several characters: the hoof-like ungles, zipidont teeth, alterostral skulls. They got their skulls are relatively broad across the frontals. This is presumably something to do with reorienting the 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 orbits. So they look like they're more terrestrial than amphibious crocs, um, and they probably are. But whether you should imagine them as like on a daily, continual basis, running around on the plains, chasing after Heracotherium or whatever. Um, well, you know, maybe that's the pendulum swinging too far. Maybe they still have some links to water. Um, maybe, Brochu says, and I, I kind of agree with this, that they are, because um, some of their adaptations, like alterostry and laterally compressed teeth, are present in some living crocs, like the Paleosuchus caimans, and Osteolamus, the African dwarf crocs, they aren't as um, aquatic in habits as you know, crocs and alligators that we're used to. They're sort of semi-terrestrial. And he says that maybe animals like planocraniids are kind of not that dissimilar from things like Paleosuchus and Osteolamus, but slightly more terrestrial. So it's kind of like grades away from... Uh, links to water. And interestingly, this lineage must go back to the Cretaceous based on the, um, the stratigraphic distribution of lineages around it in, in the cladogram. But we don't yet have any Cretaceous planocranians. You know, we should find them eventually. And if we find Cretaceous ones, well, we kind of predict they would be more aquatic than the Paleocene and Eocene ones. Uh, and maybe it's only after the KT event. So the KT event, sorry. The KPG event. The KPG event. KPG. No, no. It's yes. The, it's the it's the MC extinction. What? <laughs> Maybe in John Land. Yeah. <laughs> we 
we've talked about this before. The MC extinction. Stop. Extinction time. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Of course, of course, of course. I was a bit worried. I've just, I'm working on a long and boring article about dinosaur extinction at the moment. <laughs> well, put that in there. The KPG event. What I was going to say is the KPG event seems to be a filter for crocodiliforms. The only crocodiliforms that make it through the boundary are kind of like small, conventionally are said to be smallish and semi-aquatic. Now, there mm. is a problem with that, and that's Sebekasukians, boyah. Because some Sebekasukians that are present in some lineages, present in the Cretaceous, made it into the Palagene. And they're, again, supposed to be pretty terrestrial. But l leaving them aside for the time being, I don't know what the story is there. I've got to look into that. But otherwise, the only croc lineages that survive across the KPG event are smallish amphibian, amphibious type ones. In which case, if Planocranians survived across the boundary, do they, did they, at the time, were they an amphibious lineage that only in the Paleocene evolved larger size and more terrestrial habits? So, so does that, that kind of covers the whole mess, doesn't it? I think so. Um, I guess I could ask more questions about why they, why Chris Roshu decided not to um designate a paratype or a bunch of other of these uh it's a long paper read the taxonomic paper. uh yeah all right yeah. we'll ignore that, then. Well, he, does that. He, he does cover that and and also there's the fact that there's the fact that other workers have suggested that um basically all of the pristicamp scenes plain ukrainian is basically all of the taxa from eurasia and North America should all be included in that type of species, Pristicampsus rodinati. And if you adopt that point of view, then the sensible thing to, if you, if you took that point mm. of view, the sensible thing would be to, well, Pristicampsus is such a historically important name embedded in the literature. The most sensible thing to do is to elect a neotype. Yeah. That, you know, as, as people often do in, you know, Iguanodon and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he doesn't go down that, op that down that route, partly because he says that that view is wrong. The view that they all just are the same is is wrong. <laughs> the original material, you can't say what it is. It's one of these things. It was originally described by, well, it was referred to by Cuvier in 1824, this French material, described in 1831. Um, it's one of those cases where that type of material is not good enough for you to be absolutely sure that it's congeneric, let alone conspecific, with the things referred to Pristacampsus later on. This is the whole idea of, um, what's it called? Uh, Jeff Wilson and Paul Upchurch came up for a name with this, taxonomic obsolescence, which is where you find a vertebra and you say, oh, I'm going to call it Jonosaurus. And then you find loads of other vertebrae around the world, and they're all oh, they're exactly the same. I'm going to call them Jonosaurus as well. Yeah. And then it's over time, the features that allowed you to identify that vertebra are actually common to the vertebrae of like 20 or 30 or 40 taxa yeah over time it turns out that the features so so if you find something early on you think oh it's important no you're just looking at primitive wide, widespread characters within one or many lineages and um the original features used to diagnose pristacampsus rodinati the type of specimen aren't specific if we could be pure cladus that wouldn't matter because you name a clade based on those features, it's still going to be true. The problem is yeah. that because yeah, you're trying yeah. to name general species, it just becomes a mess because obviously 
um, isolated bones are probably are going the features on them are going to be shared by several general well, most cases plus if you apply like, yeah yeah what you're saying if you apply that name to well a branch doesn't matter what yeah. what the branch it how inclusive the branch is it's not going to be um synonymous in the broader sense i don't mean the specific sense taxonomic sense but it's, it's not going to be synonymous with the entity that people associate with that name because they are entrenched in uh, species level, genus level thinking. I, I think I yeah. think people still are entrenched in species level and genus level thinking. And I don't I don't know that I don't know when we're going to get away from it. And if we are going to get away from it, bear in mind that there is a percentage, certainly, of paleontologists who are not ever going to leave it. They're like, no, I will always stick with genus and species. You can't. Yeah, stop me. but they are going to die. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe. I don't see a lot of new people coming up thinking that this is the only way to go. Yeah. Um, so at the so... moment, there are journals There are journals where if you submit a paper, if you submit the description of a new species and say, in keeping with taxonomic redundancy, this new species doesn't mean, doesn't mean to name, to, doesn't need a genus and a species name, because I'm not naming two new taxa, I'm naming one new branch on the tree of life i'm only going to come up with one new name and the journal says ah, 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 rules stipulate you must name a genus and a species thank you very much yeah there was there was a yeah this has happened recently <laughs> i'm amazed it's hung on for so long i mean species eh, you know the biological reality of species is obviously a big uh big mess but it does make more sense than genus which is just completely whatever arbitrary. the hell you want it to be yeah yeah, yeah i I don't know, genera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, so it's the second question from Jin Tan. The Lucrota, according to mythology, has the ability to mimic the cries of a woman or a child in distress to lure its victims to their doom! <laughs> exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Are there any one, tetrapods one. that make use of such sound mimicry to predate? Yeah. Now, yeah. do you want to say anything intelligent on this? No, go ahead. Well, when people ask some of these questions, I'm often thinking, are they just asking that question because they know stuff already and they just want us to talk about their own research or their own interests? Because this is a good example. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of our question setter. Jin. Did, does Jin already know this? Is is this truly like a shot in the dark? So they, are they, is this a genuine question? Because this is something that's well recently been been published on, uh, as in, uh, well recently I suppose published two thousand nine actually. It's not maybe it's not that recent, but yes, there are animals that it has been shown recently they do use vocal mimicry to lure in prey, and the answers may really surprise you. Do you know what Margay is? No. Do you know what an ocelot is? Yes. Little spotted South American cat. The margay is kind of similar to an ocelot, but smaller oh, and different. Oh, yeah, sorry, I do yeah. know. Yeah. And, uh, um, um, so um, in... Uh, I, haven't I haven't written down exactly where. I reckon it's going to be Amazonia. Um, a team of researchers led by... Uh, in fact, I have the paper open here. I'm so stupid. Right. So there's a paper published in the journal Neotropical Primates in 2009 uh, Fabiana de Oliveira Calea Fabio 
Rohi and Marcello Gordo, pub, uh, titled Hunting Strategy of the Margay to Attract the Wild Pied Tamarind. And they reported a case, actually, actually it was um, uh, the, 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 the actual observation or acoustic observation, whatever you call it, actually occurred in 2005. A margay was heard to make a noise that sounded a bit like, not exactly like, but a bit like the call of a baby pied tamarind. And they, now, uh, how well did they establish this uh, in, in the paper? Um, on October 12, 2005, at 9.13am, a group of eight pied tamarinds monitored by telemetry was feeding in a a tree a large and they did they put the name of the tree but morris yeah we don't care about trees on this podcast (laughs) thickest spur as it says in the paper (laughs) a large vine at 15 meters height connected the surrounding trees to the fig tree at 9 18 a.m at precisely 9 15 18 (laughs) a.m ish a margate attracted the attention of a tamarind sentinel by producing calls similar to those emitted by pied tamarind pups baby monkeys are called pups no Mm. The adult male sentinel climbed up and down the tree to investigate the calls coming from behind the liana tangles. It assumed a surveillance position and, using specific calls, warned the group about the foreign calls. At 9.22 a.m., we observed movements in the vine and keep hearing and kept hearing the call limitations. At 9.29 a.m., three pine tamarind individuals were feeding on thickest spur while the tamarind sentinel was, was keeping surveillance. At 9.40 a.m., four pine tamarinds climbed up and down the Mauricia in response to the repeated aggressive calls from the tamarind sentinel. At that moment, we observed the cat with small body, but big feet, huge eyes, a long tail, walking down the trunk of a tree like a squirrel. That's <laughs> what it says. It quickly jumped to a lana that was connected to the fig tree and moved towards where the tamarinds were feeding about 15 meters away. At that moment, the sentinel emitted a high scream as the predator approached the group and the group fled immediately. So basically, they're saying that they are saying that they observed the case in which a margay mimicked a marmoset in order to, sorry, a tamarind. Tamarinds and marmosets are close relatives within Calatricidae, the platyrrhine group. So, whoa, that's whoa. crazy. But it gets better, right? In the course of our field research on felids, we interviewed local Amazon jungle inhabitants, woodsmen, and Mazito Indians in different regions of central Amazonia to learn about the biodiversity of local habitats. Blah, 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 blah. Interestingly, several of the interviewees described a common predation strategy by neotropical cats as attracting their prey by mimicking the prey species vocalizations. More than a dozen reports of puma, concordal, Panthera onca, jaguar, and Leopardus pardalis, ocelot, mimicking vocalizations of agoutis. Agoutis are ground dwelling clavium of rodents, tinamous, the uh, ratite type birds, and uh, uh, um, other kinds. They, they, they list a couple of kinds of tinamous, were made in different river basins. Until now, no scientific observations of this type of behavior have been published for neotropical felids. So, wow. Now, those anecdotes from local people, they may or may not be reliable, but the fact that people say that they're aware of cases... You know, a lot of cats, cheetahs are the best-known examples, do make whistling alarm calls or contact calls that do sound like those of prey species. So, um, really interesting idea. Vocal mimicry in cats. So they're saying that they're reported in the market. There's a paper published on this, but anecdotal evidence suggesting that it's um, yeah, present in humans and jaguars as well and uh, and and those lineages of cats margays pumas and jaguars all belong to different disparate lineages of the feline radiation 
which mm. now, because they all live near one another, maybe they all learnt it off, another, off one another and it's only an Amazonian <laughs> trick in cats, or, which, which is possible, or maybe it is actually potentially widespread within, within cats. So how cool is that? Yes, the the fact the fact that there's the 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 anecdotal nature of of those things reminded me that there are in fact a a, a whole load of anecdotes about snakes making noises and intimated at times to um to be using those noises to attract prey. So <laughs> there's a there's a couple of so so there's like old folk tales you know going back centuries about snakes making bell noises and uh, there's a there's a te- zoo article on the crowing crested cobra which is supposed to make noises like a well like a rooster obviously which has sometimes been suggested to be mimicry to lure in birds and so there's a lot my point is there's lots of stories which probably are mostly nonsense but i don't know do they possibly have a grain of truth well the idea they might have a grain of truth comes from the fact that um on sarawak a team of biologists observed a snake called a cave racer, a blue cave racer, making what they described as loud meowing noises while hanging from the side of a cave, and they reckoned that it was making these noises to attract bats. So, um, that, so far as I know, that's the only um, of these snake stories that appears to be in any way kind of reliable. But, yeah, yeah, so... Yeah. so is there the potential that, that snakes also can, in some cases, make noises that attract prey? So, so this claim that the margay, this paper published on the margay, that it's the first, the first instance of this ever, well, maybe not. But um, interesting. And I'm sure if enough people get talking about this, they'll, they'll say, oh, there's other things. It's like we heard a hawk make a noise that attracted something, or I don't know. Yeah. It'd be interesting to. Yeah, people mimic other animals all the time. Well, yeah, people mimic ducks and tapir whistles and all kinds of stuff to, and rabbit calls to lure in prey. So if we can do it, then I'm sure other things must have learned as well. This can pay off. Yes, and given the Mm. um, how much mimicry there is on other things, not specifically for predation, you'd think that it must, yeah, must go on. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that's answered. There we go. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we've done good. All right. Yeah, we've done good. Um, so we should run through the uh, cheapskate questions. Oh, facial uh, Facebook. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you to everyone. Facebook. John Conway. Loads of cash for cues. So the episode will probably mostly be taken out with him, I should think. Brian. Eng. I haven't looked at that link. Was it, what, what, have you checked this out? No. Cordata, Anura, Chiloni, and Scormata. I'll check that out later. Um, Bob Nichols, looking forward to it as always. Thanks, Bob. Andrea, Cow, what's more fantasy, the Permian or the Triassic? It's a Burian-themed question. Burian-biased question. What do you reckon he's getting at there? I have Which no idea what he's getting at there. Permian of the Triassic. Well, I think he's talking about. The fa- I presume he's maybe getting to the uh, the uh, exoticness of the f- of the fauna. The fact that we often regard the Triassic as a time of unprecedented craziness in tetrapod evolution. Um, 
Yeah, I like the fact that Memo says, oh, make sure you cover Atopa Dentatus. Yeah, also, please talk about Atopa Dentatus. Memo, I refer the honourable gentleman to the previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, we, we, we covered it last time. Brian Eng, Permian proto-mammals, straight-up monsters. So let us know about their soft tissues and behaviour. There's so much to imagine speculate about that. Yeah, yeah, so non-mammalian synapses. Yeah, we could do a whole show on those. And cash for questions, and we will. <laughs> um, Tim Morris, I haven't been able to listen to the podcast recently. They keep cutting out after a while with an error. Any tips? Now, a while ago, I, I played every single episode, and every single one of them stopped after a couple of minutes. So I am... Um, yes. I, I think I may as well just sort of get onto this, because lots of people complain about this. Yes, this is a problem with our host, and I have been battling them and battling them to get them to do something about it and I just don't seem to be able to um, there are several workarounds it works in as far as we know nearly all podcast um, software like iTunes or whatever you have on your phones and you can also download it so if you just right click download and save to disk or whatever however it normally works on your computer then the, the download link should work so yes, listening to it on the website, there is a problem with that. I know I am arguing all the time with the support people. I just, there you go. All right, next one. Darren. Uh, oh, yeah, huh? No. Yeah? No, 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 you're just talking. Yeah, because okay. yeah, I did the same thing. I just, I just mm. suggested fixes for that thing. Um, Christopher Watson, regular commenter, says that he wants us to talk about Thalassarchy albatross cheek muscle structure. Uh, and there is a really good reason for that. And it's to do with, um, well, it's kind of like how we imagine uh, the soft tissue appearance of uh, extinct archosaur faces. Because mm. um, this whole debate as to uh, cheekiness or beakiness of ornithischians and, and some theropods and, well, sauropodomorphs and other archosaurs as well. Um, yeah, there's some albatrosses that have got really weird kind of, it's like they've got, they've got like gape cheek tissue which is then feathered but then there's a part of the the gape that kind of unfolds uh, when the when the mouth is uh, is open and um you get this like naked patch of display tissue so that's really interesting but nah we're not going to talk about it now <laughs> <laughs> um brad mcfeeters why does there seem to be so little information in English on Fasolosuchus, supposedly the biggest guy in Rift Triassic Arcsaur. Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's not, well, I suppose, because it wasn't published in a particularly sort of, you know, gee whiz recent mainstream journal. It was published in the 60s. Uh, and Rouse Seekins in general, and, I mean, you know. Um, Brad has actually given us a donation, so perhaps we should spend oh. a little more time on this if you, if you, if you can. <laughs> well, can he didn't we do it, it in the time? cash for questions format, but I, I'll suggest to Brad that. If this was meant to be a cash for question, then yeah, stick it in the PayPal um, notification. But I, I it, God, I'm butchering this, aren't I? A, Generally, the way you do it is when you give us a donation, you put it in the PayPal um, notes to the receiver or whatever. Um, Brad, if you wanted this to be a cash for question, let us know and we'll put it in for next episode. How about that? I mean, we, yeah, I mean, it's no problem saying very, very briefly. I mean, for solar sequence, it's kind of relevant to what we were talking about with the Manda beds, Tanzanian archosaurs. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a Rausukian, um, well, although bearing in mind that the, what exactly the term Rausukian means at the moment is somewhat ambiguous because not all phylogenies find these different lineages of big cursorial crocodile archosaurs to group together. But it's a, 
it's it's a big Ralph Zukin, as in like over eight meters long, eight to ten meters long, which is I think makes it something like the biggest one ever. The big people normally say Saurosuchus is the biggest one. That's a um, both these animals. I think they're both Argentinian. For Saurosuchus is Argentinian. It's, yeah, Saurosuchus is, is is normally said to be the biggest one, about seven meters. But for Saurosuchus, it's apparently it's apparently um, bigger. And um, um, yeah, described by um, uh, Jose Bonaparte in the 1980s, and I think his, um, you know, part of the reason that it's not as well known as it should be is because his his papers in Spanish, which I, I hate to say, I feel I always feel very Anglo-centric in saying things like this, but you know, when stuff isn't in English, it's a often is not as well appreciated as it as it uh, as it should be so some of the weird anatomical details of this animal is, is supposed to have like um uh like uh, particularly remarkable vertebral features and size um but yeah i mean i could well, we we could say more about rasukians next time because like i say the the, uh, the 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 group has become more more diverse more interesting the more the more we've learned um so yeah, there isn't much on mm. for Solosuchus to say, really. But, um, mm. um, so yeah, um, and uh, what else we got? Um, Memo says we should talk about. Oh, yeah, now I don't. I, I, we how much time? Have we, I, it seems to me that we've done a long podcast, but is that we're getting on to being I, a long podcast? But uh, yeah, so uh, we need to. Mm, but then we're just going to wrap up after this, so we're that's fine. You know, we're we're in time. Uh, Ethan, Ethan Kosak of Black Mud Puppy fame. Uh, we haven't spoken about what's been on Tet Zoo. I mean, one of the things I mentioned, I've, I've been doing, I did a series of articles, well, two articles on Australian dragons, the agamids, and I spoke about the the fact that people have selectively bred a bunch of um, bearded dragon morphs that are obviously specific to captivity they don't occur in the wild and i said that you know well these are domestic lizards we've created domestic strains of lizards likewise for some snakes bull pythons and so on and um and then there was a little bit of a debate in, in the tetsu comments as to well are these animals really domestic or not one person made the point that they're only different by like one gene and they wouldn't really persist for a long time but it's like well are you sure that that's not the criterion for domestication i mean there isn't really a, a clear, precise definition of what makes something domesticated, but I would say if we've got a, a population of animals that only exists in captivity and only exists through human selective breeding um, and have some traits which make them more amenable to human association, then uh, I would say I think that makes them domesticated. They don't have to be like sheepdog or something. Um I don't know, and uh, yeah, and, and Ethan and Ethan brings up this this thing whether we should uh, discuss lizard domestication, including the effectiveness of spray bottle training on varanids when they drink out of the toilet. Now that uh, if if you if you are if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter and stuff, you'll have seen this interesting little mini discussion. I'm, I'm monitor lizards coming next on Tetsu, by the way. In fact, that'll probably be live by the time you hear this. But um, yeah, I heard this anecdote about Komodo dragons drinking out of toilets. So I thought it'd be funny to, in the style of all yesterday's, because <laughs> someone's <laughs> it was suggested that, it, that having you get some paleo artists to, to work on that one. So, uh, so my my westernised mind, I of course immediately imagined the sort of big ceramic 
bowl-shaped thing, which of course is completely inaccurate for Indonesia, where toilets are, of course, not like that. But um, but it turns out there's this Komodo dragon in Komodo National Park that um, apparently regularly visits the same squat toilet and drinks out of it. And uh, mm. Marcus Buller pointed me to tasty. What the hell? <laughs> Sorry, that noise came across really weird. Yeah, this uh, this dragon, it's been photographed and, and even filmed. It's included in a documentary. It goes into the toilet <laughs> and drinks out of it, which, of course, then led me to link back to the... You know, there's a Tetsu article about some slices, t- two-toed slices that um, go into toilets. Oh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> Actually, grow, go, if you haven't read this article, then Google why sloths crawl into your toilet or something along those lines. And there's an article based on a recent, a then recently published paper, which is about sloths that actually climb into drop latrines and literally go into the semi-liquid sludge mm. at the bottom or like hang above it, you know, from the, the hole in the wood where the, for people to sit and uh, they then eat <laughs> the waste at the bottom of the drop latrine pit um yeah that's a true story and nobody knows why they don't uh, yeah slides mm. um yeah uh, um, so uh, raymond tobin says transcripts come on readers come on L- listeners listeners even come on listeners where are those transcripts come on slackers um Brian, uh, Raymond says some other things. Uh, Brian Eng. As Brian also says, have you thought about putting the podcast up on YouTube? Uh, we, I don't know. No. We haven't. Vaguely. Why? Well, yeah. 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 Uh, I think un- unfortunately... I'd have to turn uh, comments off, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Christ. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, always, I always feel guilty about saying what I'm about to say, and I shouldn't. But here goes. I think people have to appreciate that a lot of this, well, all of this stuff that we're doing, podcasting and, and blogging and, and John and his artwork, is, well, we're actually trying to in some way, in some way get some money out of this. So, I mean, I've made, basically my career has consisted of me producing stuff and putting it out there for free. Uh, and I've done that with everything because, you know, I kind of think that's the right thing to do. Has that worked for me? No, because... No. I, <laughs> because I can't afford to eat or heat my house or pay my mortgage. So, um, whereas, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you get what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying. We basically try and need to be clever in terms of how we market our stuff, especially if people, you know, seem to like it. I mean, we have a lot of listeners, so people obviously quite like what we're doing. And hey, I think it's still early in the game. So, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah there's, and there's a few other Facebook things. So thank you to everyone who's commented on Facebook and follows me on Twitter, and comments on Tetsu. Right, let's wrap it up. I think. Yeah. Yes, because we've been going for about an hour and twenty minutes. So. Okay. There's a, there they... is a tetrapod. Sorry, sorry. Do you want? Are you going to say something? There is a tetrapod zoology. There's a Tetrapod Zoology Facebook page. Not enough people know this. I, every time I look at it, I'm impressed with the amount of like pictures I've loaded up there and stuff. So, so, and I've just started a new folder of um, Tetsu fan arts because thanks to Ethan Kozak and thanks to um, John Tamel and Alberta Claw and many others, uh, we, we have some brilliant uh, sort of Tetsu themed fan art. Of course, some of it based around, well, much of it based around the Tetsu time. Uh, webcomic on uh, which is on Tumblr and um, 
deviant art that uh, John and uh, John Tamel and uh, Alberto Claw produce, which you should definitely check out, which we've had in the show notes before. I tweet at. <clears throat> So the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. Tetsu. <laughs> and there's a website called Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. There will be a new article like real soon on obscure monitor lizards, which I really want to get done ASAP. Can never blog fast enough because of stupid paying work that I have to do. Um, you. Uh, well, people should go to the website for this podcast, which is tetzu.com, um, where you'll find links to donate on PayPal, buy our T-shirts, this sort of stuff, which is always yeah. good. Books. Books. All Yesterday's and Cryptozoologicon from Irregular Books, irregularbooks.co. You can also find them on Amazon and all other terrible digital retailers. And possibly some good ones as well. I don't know. Um, what else have we got? You've got Tetsu Book One. Mm-hmm. Available Seems on... Seems to go out of print. Quick, buy it now before it goes out of print. Quickly, You'll never quickly. be able to get it again. Uh-huh. How many How many people have got the first edition with a typo on the spine? It's a collector's edition. Now I hear it sells for hundreds of pounds. I'm going to try and keep <laughs> spreading that rumor until it sticks. <laughs> try and get it up to thousands and I'll sell mine. <laughs> Yeah. Um Yes. Oh you, you you hate begging for money, but I'm gonna do it anyway because you hate it, so I'll I'll have to do it. Yeah. Uh, do it. <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. You'll just you'll just sit there looking aloof. <laughs> yeah, we don't make a lot of money and it's really nice if people donate to the podcast. Especially um recurring donations. And um and since I mentioned this and possibly because of my blog posts as well we we did get a bunch of people doing recurring donations and it's made it it's making a huge difference i mean just sit down and know we've made a certain amount of money for every podcast is is great um uh but but more of that would be greater still wouldn't it um yes um we're still we're still in the we're still in the stage where we're not making you know it's questionable whether we should be spending time on it in terms of money so It'd be great if we uh, if we could make a bit more. So recurring donations are great, and don't feel like you have to put a big number in there. Don't think you're a cheapskate if you put in a dollar or a pound or whatever. That's great. You know, that's twelve, twelve, twelve dollars a year. You'll never even miss that. Yeah. So yeah. we should say thank you very much to people who have who have um, uh, helped and uh, donated so far. We really appreciate it. But um, yeah. yeah, the more we, the more the easier this is for us, the more we can do because the less crap we would have to do. I spend all my bloody time working on crap that I don't want to do because I have to, I have to stupidly earn money. Whereas, yeah, well, uh, as a, yeah, let's, yeah, if, I think if we get enough recurring donations happening um, so that it sort of justifies spending a day a week on this, then we'd, we'd bump it up to a weekly thing, right? Without doubt, I'll do a yeah. daily thing if, if I can live up it. I, I have <laughs> now. Uh, okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I was. There's there's no reason for me to share this very personal aspect of my life. But the last couple of weeks, I'm not kidding. I have been uh, pretty much considering jacking it all in, like all of it. The pursuit of academia, publishing papers, tetrapodology, because I just can't. I just and I'm getting particularly concerned about. Look, I'm gonna stop there because Jesus Christ, what am I doing? I sound like you, but. Um, <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the re- yeah the reason i don't like doing it is because it makes it sound like you know you, you uh, asking people to expecting people to provide for a living whereas the answer is well you idiot why don't you so what my mum says, well, you idiot, why don't you give up all this crap and go and work for an accountant? Or, you know, go and, yeah, yeah. Go and get a job. There's plenty of supermarkets but, out there. But I yes, think, I know. Yeah. But the thing yeah. is, I think people do want it, and they they don't mind paying for it. They just don't know that, you know, that really relies on that. We both really rely on that. It's not like a... Yes. Um, so I, I think people are willing to pay for what we do, you know. An hour and a half of dubious entertainment once every fortnight. <laughs> dubious. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 But yeah, but, but, but big love and thanks to, to people who have been so kind. Um, cause, Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to be putting uh, like photos of the uh, people that have bought our T-shirts on uh, the old... Uh, yes. On the old yeah. Tetsu blog, yeah. Uh, yeah sorry, the Tetsu.com blog. Yes. There's a, there's a there's a challenge to try and get yourself photographed in front. I think Cameron McCormick set up. Uh, get yourself photographed in front of a strange tetrapod while wearing a uh, a, a Tetsu podcast T-shirt. Ah uh-huh, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll link to that. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that's well, it. Yeah. <gasps> we didn't talk about movies. 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 We yeah. Movies. Movies. We really need to do a movie again. We really do. Yeah. 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 Okay. But we don't have. We haven't. We haven't watched a movie. So. Yeah, let, yeah. Film, so yeah. yeah. Let's just yeah, let's just no stop time. now. Okay. Yeah, stop now. Stop. Okay. Yeah. Stopping. Um, do you wanna do you wanna make the noise of a like a, a baby tamarind or something? Okay. Yeah, go on. Okay, good. All right.